Thank you, Luke. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the deal is, is that um, I have not been up here teaching since November. So I feel a little rusty, and it's an honor and a privilege to be able to open up God's Word, to talk with you, to share a little bit about my life. And um, I just finished a three-month sabbatical, and I'm just so grateful to you, the River Church, for allowing me to do this. During my sabbatical, I, I took a lot of time to be quite introspective about the last couple years, as we all have, but at the beginning of the pandemic, my wife died from throat cancer, and it's been a brutal two years for all of us, but I did it without my best friend, and so these last three months on sabbatical, I went to Scotland and Ireland. It was such a delight. I walked many, many miles. I read many books. I wrote in my journal page after page after page as I was trying to listen to God and hear what he was telling me to bring healing and wholeness and health inside and just give me direction for the future. And part of that future is being with you here this morning. And uh, I was prompted in the midst of it, uh, lived in my house for 32 years. I need to sell this house. So thanks to Steve and Cece Watts and their team, I sold my house while I was in Ireland with my iPhone. I sold it at a good time, but it was really simple. I gave away all my furniture because I have great memories in that house, but I didn't want to live with those memories in that geographical space. And then Cece Watts went and toured some places and found a spot for me to live, an apartment. It's that gray building down there, the really tall one with the black uh, elevator stack in the back. It's called The Delphi. Luke and Brittany live there. I signed a lease to live in the Delphi, having never set foot in the building. Now, I knew they lived there, and then it turns out I'm two doors down from Luke and Brittany and a couple floors down from his parents, where Bobby and the family stayed last night. The Delphi is a magical, beautiful place. I have an apartment that's facing the ocean, and it's bringing such healing into my life. While I was uh, gone, my daughter, who had recently got uh, engaged to be married, they decided to move to Denver, where his family is. So I'm, I'm starting a new chapter in my life. Like, the, the door is wide open. I don't know what the future will be like, but it's feeling like it's a hopeful, promising kind of future, which makes me excited as we move into this new summer series. We're doing a summer series that we're calling Stories from Another World, the parables of Jesus. We're going to look at the parables in the four Gospels, the stories that Jesus told, and a parable, a parable in the Gospels is about life in the kingdom and what the king is like. A parable is a story that Jesus tells to give us a picture of what life in the kingdom is like and what the king is like. And I like what Malcolm Muggeridge says. This is one of my favorite quotes. Malcolm says, All happenings, great and small, are parables whereby God speaks. The art of life is to get the message. Everything that happens are opportunities where God is speaking to us and he wants us to hear, wants us to listen. 
be attuned to God's voice. So, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the parable we're going to look at this morning. It's in Luke chapter 15. And we commonly call this parable uh, the parable of the prodigal son. But I'm going to give it another name. Now, the setup that Luke chooses is really important when you come to the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And if you notice in your Bible, if you've got that open, you'll notice in chapter 14 near the end, Jesus gives a little section of teaching. Did I lose my uh, microphone? No, I'm okay. Can you hear me? It went down a little bit, right? We need, we need volume up a little bit, Ron. Check one, two. Okay. All right. Yeah, there you, there you are. I can see you in the back. Thank you for the thumbs up. Uh, you notice in chapter 14 near the end, Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship. And then what does he say right at the end of chapter 14? He says this, whoever has ears to hear, let him listen. And that's always our challenge. But then look at chapter 15, verse 1, setting up the parable. In verse 1, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to what? To hear Jesus. You notice that contrast? Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Who is listening? The tax collectors and the sinners. And then verse 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. And it's a three-part parable. There's a parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then what we often call the lost son. The title today I want to give it is The Parable of the Two Lost Sons and the Prodigal Father. It's very important that we pay attention. Who is Jesus telling this parable to or about or for? So I want to read the parable, uh, give a little kind of some, some context comments, and then finish up with some observations and some questions. So you can just listen into the parable or you can follow along. In verse 11, the parable of the lost son, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between the two boys. Now, from a first century, patriarchal, father-centered, focused culture, this was ridiculous for a son to ask for his father to divide the estate before he was dead. It's like saying, you know, hey, Dad, I would like you dead because I want what's coming to me. He wanted the gifts of the father, but he didn't want the father. And I'm sure there's some fathers here who could say, hey, man, I've been there for sure. My checkbook, my wallet, they want my gifts, but maybe not me. Not long after that, in other words, right away, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. In other words, what the son did is he took the portion of property that he'd received. He would get one-third. His older brother would get two-thirds. He took the third of the father's estate, and he sold it off, turned it into cash, and he squandered it all in a distant country in wild living. Now, it gets worse. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. 
So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now, it cannot get worse for a young Jewish man to be sent into the field to feed pigs. They just had nothing to do. It was the, the, the lowest of the low that he could imagine himself to be in, but he'd gotten himself into a really, really awful situation. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This is the lowest point of this guy's life so far. Like, he just can't imagine that his choices have taken him from living with his father and relative wealth to this incredibly difficult and painful situation. And a really good therapist told me one time that people don't really change until there's pain. We live with a lot of dysfunction. We live with a lot of uh, 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 really poor choices. Uh, we, we, live, we live with, um, with situations that don't have to exactly stay the same until we begin to feel the squeeze of pain. And that's primarily what will motivate us to take some action, to do something to find relief. We have another choice, to do something good or to do something that is not very smart. Well, verse 17, the story goes on. When this boy came to his senses, there was a moment of reckoning inside his heart and his mind. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of, like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Sometimes all you can do and sometimes all you have to do is just get up and take the first step. We come to the second scene in the parable now, the story. Just such a beautiful picture. And in one sense, I want to let all the fathers in the crowd off the hook. Like, this parable is often set up as a standard for you and for me as fathers. And the good news is we have a heavenly father who sets the standard. And he forgives us. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. You know, wealthy landowners in that culture never run. It, it, is, it is below what this kind of father would do. He doesn't take his robe and hike it up and show his bare legs in public. Now, we do that here in our culture. We live in a very different culture. But for a man who was highly esteemed, he would never do that. He would never run. He would sit in his chair, and he would wait for someone to come to him. I'm curious. It says, why... The son was still a long way off. His father saw him. I wonder how his father saw him from a distance. Was he, was he looking for him? Was he longing for him? Every day, did he look at the road and 
pray for his son to come home. And the son said to him, and this is his research speech, his research confession to his father. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can say in his speech, make me one of your hired servants, the father interrupts him. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe. What's the best robe in his house? It's the father's own robe. And put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. You only kill the fatted calf when you're going to throw a party for the entire community. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. This is restoration. This son has been fully restored in a relationship with his father and with his family and his community. He's welcomed home as a son again with honor and dignity. Even the father gives him authority in the family. He calls him this son of mine. Now normally, If a young man like this who had squandered his father's wealth with such living, the community would go and grab that kid if he returned and ban him from the village. He would never be allowed to come home. The community would rough him up and push him away. And maybe that's why the father ran. He ran to beat the community to his son so he could envelop him in embraces and kisses and welcome him home. He was lost, but now he's found, and there has to be a celebration. A celebration like the two previous parables. And the lost sheep and the lost coin, when the sheep and the coin are found, there's a celebration. Jesus is telling parables of celebration about something that was lost, and now they're found. Now, I want to go to the final scene. Now, this is really important. Because many, many times we've heard the parable of the lost, uh, the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son. And we've stopped right there because it's really an amazing story. And so we wrap it up and we say, dads, restore your sons. Sons, come home. Daughters, come home. And we stop right there. But there's a final scene that's absolutely vital to the reason Jesus told this parable that we need to attend to. Let those who have ears to hear, let let us hear. Meanwhile, the older son. See, the parable starts, there was a man who had two sons, and we haven't heard anything about the older son, but here he is in the final act. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? Your brother's come, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. I like that emphasis. He's back safe and sound, not he got his life together. He is safe. My son is home, and he's safe. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Here's the tension in the parable. 
why was the older brother angry? What, what made him so angry? And really, if you, if you listen to this parable, maybe from the per- perspective of a parent, wouldn't you be angry too? The brother refuses to go in. Now, the oldest son, when the, when the family throws a banquet for the village, for the community, the oldest son has a responsibility. He's like the MC of the party. He's supposed to wander the party, greeting all the guests, making sure everyone has enough to drink and food to eat, and making sure that there's a happy environment. And this son, by refusing to go in, is disrespecting his father. He's shaming his father publicly in front of the whole village for the love that the father has given to his younger brother. So both sons have shamed their father. So his father went out and pleaded with him to leave the party For the father to leave the party and go plead with his older son, please, I want you in the banquet, the celebration. I don't know if it strikes you, but this is the second time the father has left his house to go seek one of his two boys. So let me remind you, going back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 2, who is this parable about. Who's the older son in the parable? But the Pharisees, verse 2, and the teachers of the law muttered. It's for muttering, angry, older sons. Jesus is pleading with them to come to the banquet, to join his brother and be part of the celebration. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, now, it's, it's almost as if the older son is now going to give his father a lecture about what life in the kingdom is supposed to look like. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. You notice the perspective that this older son has of his relationship with his father? It's not warm. It's not loving. It's all about slaving for you. It's like the older son is a slave to his father. It's all about obeying your orders. Doesn't even call him his father. And then he says, this son of yours, not my brother. It's like, I'm not going to sit at the table with that son of yours. The older son is estranged from his family. Really, Not that much different than the younger son. He's splitting it apart just like the young boy did. And then the parable ends. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate. We have to celebrate. And we have to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Remember, a parable is a picture of life. It's a picture of what life in the kingdom is all about. Jesus is giving a, a, a word picture. This is, this is not a parenting manual, by the way. This, this is, this is a, a word picture to get our imaginations going, to get a hint at what is important to the king, to Jesus in the kingdom. It's to get us talking. And in fact, parables sometimes are designed to provoke, like to make us mad, to say, no, I don't want life in the kingdom to be that way. I want it to be more fair. I want there to be more, more accountability. So a couple uh, final observations and uh, maybe questions to get us thinking. I'm really struck by the word compassion that is in this parable. The father was filled with compassion. Compassion means to suffer with. Jesus left the comfort of his home in heaven and entered our world and suffered with us. He moved right into the neighborhood. It was Paul, the Apostle Paul, that said, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And while the sun was a long way off, the younger brother was a long way away. In fact, he couldn't imagine that his life could be farther away from a relationship with his father. And in that very moment, the father's heart was filled with compassion and he ran to pursue and find his son, to embrace him, to kiss him. It doesn't matter how far a human being runs from God, he'll run faster. I noticed these three themes, compassion, confession, and celebration in the parable. Did you see them? Did you notice them? There's the compassion of the father. There's the confession of the younger son. And then there's the celebration. And I wonder if the order is intentional. Compassion first, confession second, celebration third. And our natural inclination is, no, 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 no. you got to start with that, that son has to get it right and say, I was wrong, I'm sorry. The father doesn't say, get your life together, keep the rules. No, instead he says, you, you're welcome in the banquet, come in. The, the second thing that really strikes me is, in the last couple weeks in our Romans 6-8 through series, uh, Todd Taylor have been talking about our identity. Understanding our identity because we're in Christ. Our identity as we're part of what Jesus is doing. 
This is a parable about two lost sons. And I want to suggest that the kingdom, the church actually, every church is filled with a lot of younger sons. And my friends, the church is also filled with a lot of older sons. I don't know which one you gravitate toward. Oh, yeah, I'm definitely a younger son. Because really, frankly, nobody wants to say out loud they're the older brother. But every church has got them. The younger wanted to be a slave. Just bring me home as one of your hired servants. He, wa- he longed to be a slave. If only I could be a slave groveling on the ground. But the older brother felt like a slave in his relationship with his father. You know, sin and shame shackles do not discriminate between the younger and the older. It imprisons both. The younger, he was a slave through outlandish sin. The older, he was a slave through diligent duty. The younger, licentiousness. The older, legalism. Both of them were estranged from their father, separated by their own choices. The younger by running away, and the older by staying home. The younger, he was all about hyper-breaking the rules. The older, he was all about hyper-keeping the rules, and neither way of relating to his father worked. The father still has two sons. He treated them both with tender intimacy. Both both the younger and the older needed the compassion that is found in the gospel. And you know, at the river, we love books. And so if you feel like you're a younger son, I'll give you a reading suggestion. Get Brennan Manning's Abba's Child and read it. And be wrapped in the Father's love. If you're discovering within yourself some inclination toward being the older son, then I want to encourage you. Tim Keller's The Prodigal God is a really good read for older brothers. But you know, we finished up that Romans series last week. And as I listened to the series and thought about the prodigal son, I thought, wow, maybe the Apostle Paul just read this story, which of course he hadn't. And then he wrote Romans 8, uh, just, just a hint at where you see the prodigal son and the older brother in Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And then he goes on, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Paul, he knows this story of this son and the dividing of the inheritance. And Romans 8 ends, For I am convinced, dear boys, that neither death nor life nor angels, demons, 
neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. My friends, that's the good news. And the Father says we have to celebrate. Friends, the kingdom is a party. The kingdom is a celebration. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners on purpose, in anticipation of the big banquet. If you read the end of the story, if you read Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 21, Revelation 22, you will discover where we're headed. We're headed to a massive banquet. When older sons and younger sons, men and women, people from every nation, every tribe, will sit at the, at the, at the Lamb's Supper, the wedding feast, there's going to be a party. And Jesus gives us a glimpse into that party. We can celebrate now. Our table, it anticipates it. This table is significant because it's our reminder that we're headed to a massive banquet. Every time you gather around a table with your family or friends for a meal, you are celebrating what is going to happen. Because there's kingdom music, and dancing to be heard right now. And we can listen to Bobby talk about his community. And it is tragic. And if we could peer inside some of our families, there's heartache. We look across our land and we think, it seems like everything is going horribly wrong. But in Bobby's community... There is music and there is dancing of the kingdom. Can you hear it? We sometimes can get so focused on the things that are going wrong that we forget that at the center of our faith is the cross and the resurrection. And if our faith has the cross and the resurrection at its foundation, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No tragedy can stop us from acknowledging that in the end, God is going to restore everything and make everything right again. So I end with this question. Did the older brother ever go into the banquet? As, as if the story doesn't have an ending. And I think it's intentional because... Jesus now turns the story of the two lost sons and he looks at you and me. And he basically asks, will you, will you come into the banquet? You younger sons and daughters. You, you older sons and daughters. You are welcome. You are welcome to be put right in a relationship with your father through Jesus and his sacrifice through the cross and the resurrection. Will you come in? You know, Jesus ate with tax gatherers and sinners. And I was struck by the thought that, you know what, I, I have a lot of older brother in me, but I also have the younger brother in me. I'm, I'm both. And the only way you get to the table is by acknowledging you're one or the other. 
So only sinners go to that table. Can we just get that straight? <laughs> like, for us to go to that table, we're acknowledging, I'm one of these guys. And that table is for me. That, that's a sign of the coming banquet. So Luke, will you come up and uh, lead us to the table? Help us understand it, and we can celebrate a bit. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Bill. Man, that was just amazing. Yes. I know. First sermon back since November, and, and you brought it. Um, I love that. I love, Bill, I wrote down what you said, uh, what you noticed about uh, the Father and compassion. That was a very awkward way to put my um, stuff down to. Did anyone else see that? Um, <clears throat> it starts with compassion. The Father running to the younger son. The Father going out to the older brother. It starts with compassion, guys. God's love for us is extravagant, is extreme, and he lavishes it upon us. He has come to you. Every single one of you sitting here, the Father has compassion on you, and his love is for you. And then Bill said the next step is confession. And that's what he was just hinting to here at the end. The table is for those who recognize that we are sinners. Before God now, we say, you know, I, I am one of those brothers. I am someone who has walked away. Who needs the Father to come to me? I have left on either end of those extremes of the younger brother or the older brother. And the last is celebration. And this is what the table is all about. The table, communion, the elements, the Eucharist. The celebration that the Lord Jesus has died and has risen again. This is worth celebrating. Is this a party? We get to celebrate together, and this meal, or <clears throat> it's less of a meal here, but it's supposed to be more of a meal, is that celebration. It's the proclamation that Jesus has died and he has risen again. So I want to read to you a passage from uh, Corinthians. I read it last week as well. For Paul, he's saying this to the church. He said, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are doing this morning. Proclaiming the Lord's death and entering into the celebration that's foreshadowing the celebration that will fully come at the end when all of us are together with Jesus, our King, celebrating all that he has done. So we invite you now, come to the table. Come and enjoy the celebration of our Lord. The time is yours. <clears throat>